Hello, this is Father John Arthur Orr, Associate Pastor at Holy Ghost Catholic Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. This is our 30th installment on Man and Woman, He Created Them, A Theology of the Body, the 133 talks given by Pope John Paul II over the five years, 1979 through 1984. We're indebted to Professor Michael Waldstein, whose edition we're using. With surprising precision, Genesis chapter 3 describes the phenomenon of shame which came on the scene in the first man together with original sin. Careful reflection on this text allows us to conclude from it that shame, which replaced the absolute trust connected with the earlier state of original innocence in the reciprocal relationship between man and woman, has a deeper dimension. On this question, we should reread Genesis chapter 3 to the end and not limit ourselves to chapter 3, verse 7, nor even to the text chapter 3, verses 10 through 11, which contain the testimony about the first experience of shame. After this narrative, the dialogue of God, Yahweh, with the man and the woman breaks off and a monologue begins. Yahweh turns to the woman and speaks first about the pains of childbirth that were to accompany her from that point on. I will multiply your pains in childbearing. In pain you will bring forth children. Genesis chapter 3 verse 16. This is followed by the expression that characterizes the future relationship between the two, the man and the woman. Your desire shall be for your husband, but he will dominate you. Like the words of Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, these words have a future-oriented character. The incisive formulation of Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, seems to concern the whole complex of the facts that in some way came to light already in the original experience of shame, but were later to become clear in the whole inner experience of historical man. The history of human consciousness and human hearts was to confirm repeatedly the words contained in Genesis chapter 3 verse 16. The words spoken at the beginning seem to refer to a particular reduction of woman in comparison with man. But there is no reason why one should understand this reduction as social inequality. Rather, the expression, your desire shall be for your husband, but he will dominate you, immediately indicates another form of inequality, that woman was to feel as a lack of full unity, precisely in the vast context of union with man to which both were called, according to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. The words of God, Yahweh, your desire shall be for your husband, but he will dominate you, do not speak only about the moment of union between man and woman when both unite so as to become one flesh. See Genesis chapter 2 verse 24. But they refer to the wide context of relations of conjugal union as a whole, including indirect relations. For the first time the man is here defined as husband. In the whole context of the Yahwist narrative, the words of Genesis chapter 3 verse 16 signify above all a breach, a fundamental loss of the primeval community communion of persons. 
This communion had been intended to make man and woman mutually happy through the search of a simple and pure union in humanity, through a reciprocal offering of themselves, that is, through the experience of the gift of the person, expressed with soul and body, with masculinity and femininity, flesh of my flesh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 23, and finally through the subordination of such a union to the blessing of fruitfulness with procreation. It seems thus that in the words addressed by God, Yahweh, to the woman, there is a deeper echo of the shame that both began to experience after the breaking of the original covenant with God. Here we find, moreover, a fuller motivation for such shame in a manner that is very discreet but nevertheless decipherable and expressive enough. Genesis chapter 3 verse 16 attests how that original beatifying conjugal union of persons was to be deformed in man's heart by concupiscence. These words are directly addressed to the woman, but they refer to the man, or rather, to both together. The meaning of insatiability of the union. Already the analysis of Genesis chapter 3 verse 7 carried out before has shown that in the new situation, after the breaking of the original covenant with God, man and woman did not find themselves united with each other, but rather more divided, or even set against each other because of their masculinity and femininity by highlighting the instinctive impulse that had made them cover their bodies, the biblical account describes at the same time the situation in which man as male or female, before then it was rather male and female, senses himself more estranged from the body as from the source of original union in humanity, flesh from my flesh and more set against the other precisely on the basis of the body and of sex. This antithesis neither destroys nor excludes the conjugal union willed by the Creator, see Genesis chapter 2 verse 24, nor its procreative effects, but it confers on the realization of this union another direction that was to be the one proper to the man of concupiscence. This is precisely what Genesis chapter 3 verse 16 speaks about. The woman whose desire shall be for her husband, Genesis chapter 3 verse 16, and the man whose response to this desire, as we read, is to dominate her, form without any doubt the same human couple, the same marriage as in Genesis chapter 2 verse 24, even the same community of persons, but nevertheless they are now something different. They are no longer only called to union and unity, but are also threatened by the insatiability of that union and unity, which does not cease to attract man and woman precisely because they are persons called from eternity to exist in communion. In the light of the biblical account, sexual shame has its deep meaning, which is connected precisely with the failure to satisfy the aspiration to realize in the conjugal union of the body, see Genesis chapter 2 verse 24, the reciprocal communion of persons. All of this seems to confirm under various aspects that 
At the root of the shame in which historical man has become a participant, there lies the threefold concupiscence about which the first letter of St. John, chapter 2, verse 16, speaks. Not only the concupiscence of the flesh, but also the concupiscence of the eyes and the pride of life. Does not the expression about domination, he will dominate you, about which we read in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, indicate that third form of concupiscence? Does not domination over the other, of man over woman, essentially change the structure of communion in interpersonal relations? Does it not transpose into the dimension of this structure something that makes an object out of a human being, an object in some sense, concupiscible for the eyes? These are the questions that spring from reflection about the words of God Yahweh according to Genesis chapter 3 verse 16, spoken on the threshold, as it were, of human history after original sin. These words reveal to us not only the external situation of man and woman, but allow us also to penetrate into the interior of the deep mysteries of their hearts. And with these words, our Holy Father, Pope John Paul II, concluded his 30th catechesis on man and woman. He created them a theology of the body. And for the purposes of contextualization, this 30th catechesis is the second part of chapter 2 of the first part of the theology of the body. Part 1, the words of Christ. Chapter 1, Christ appeals to the beginning. Chapter 2, Christ appeals to the human heart. This part of chapter 2 is under the heading of the man of concupiscence, the man who has a tendency to sin, our fallen nature. And within that second part of the second chapter of the first part of John Paul's magnum opus, the heading is insatiability of the union. And that's actually another subheading in this part, the meaning of the insatiability of the union. Pope John Paul II does not quite give an Oxford entry, as you'd find in the English dictionary, but he addresses it in a different way. When Pope John Paul II presents this passage this 30th Catechesis of the Theology of the Body, he said this, that man and woman, husband and wife, are no longer only called to union and unity, but are also threatened by the insatiability of that union and unity, which does not cease to attract them precisely because they are persons called from eternity to exist in communion. Before the fall, it was possible that the original unity, the union of husband and wife, man and woman, could satisfy in a real way. But since the fall, how hard it is. Our hearts are restless till they rest in thee, O God, writes St. Augustine in his Confessions. And while the Holy Father, Pope John Paul II, does not cite the doctor of grace here, his echo resounds nonetheless. To have an insatiability is to have a thirst, a desire which cannot be quenched, which cannot be entirely satisfied. And this is not in the sense of a hedonistic rolling stones, I can't get no satisfaction. It's a deep anthropological reality, even as great as holy marriage is. And it is great. It's a way to heaven. It's a path of holiness in this world. But even still, it is God alone who satisfies. 
and we will not behold him face to face until the next life, for which we long, for which we thirst, which is possible only because the bridegroom of Mother Church, Christ Jesus, laid down his life once for all on the altar of the cross, a sacrifice made present continually even until he should return in glory to judge the living and the dead on the altars of Mother Church. And what is it that we hear at the altar? Words which echo the nuptial union of husband and wife. This is my body. This is my blood given up for you. Part of the insatiability which husband and wife experience, perhaps, is that it comes to an end. The two become one flesh, but it is passing. The two become one will. They desire the other's good. They desire each other's good. This can endure and in point of fact is one of the greatest blessings in marriage after that of children, since the children are in the image of God, even if defigured by original sin, which is inherited with human nature, which is transmitted with human nature. And the Holy Father addressed that in that passage too. The union, the unity, does not cease to attract them precisely because they are persons, human persons, made in the image of the divine persons made to live in communion, called from eternity to exist in communion, not only with each other, but with Almighty God, and with the children the good God will give them as cooperators in his creation, procreators. Pope John Paul II reminds us in this 30th Catechesis, Man and Woman, He Created Them, A Theology of the Body, of the third chapter of Genesis. Genesis chapter 3 describes the phenomenon of shame, which came on the scene in the first man together with original sin. It's very dramatic to come on the scene. It reminds us of the dramatic background of Karl Wojtyla, who became John Paul II, his work in the Rhapsodic Theater, undermining the Nazi tyranny, and later the tyranny of the Soviets, the communist dictatorship which succeeded the Nazis in Poland. By means of culture, a nation's identity preserved, a Christian identity And we, who are made in the image of God, who are redeemed by the death and resurrection of the God-man Jesus Christ, this is the remedy we know for sin. This is the remedy we know for shame. And rather than with crude fig leaves or base loincloths, we are clothed in Christ, in holy baptism, clothed anew, washed in his grace and in his saving blood. He alone takes away our shame. He alone takes away our sin, that which we inherit and those which we commit, our unhappy faults. All of this prefigured in Genesis, the Holy Father reminds us. The Holy Father, Pope John Paul II, identifies the first experience of shame, not the last. Whenever I sin, whenever you sin, shame is our lot. And it moves us to repentance on our better days. How much better still when we avoid our subsequent sins. Would that we only had original sin to repent, but alas, we follow the bad example of so many others, and thereby set bad example for how many others after us. But Pope John Paul II is not content to speak only of the first shame, the original shame, to only speak of original sin, but he also speaks about a deeper shame, a deeper echo of the shame that both man and woman experience after the breaking of the original covenant with God. I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid, so I hid myself. It's not just the shame of nakedness, but the shame of having disregarded the holy will of God, the original covenant, 
You may eat of all the fruit of the garden, but not from the tree of life, and not from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, both of which, in their own way, anticipate the cross of Christ Jesus, which is truly the tree of life, upon which truth incarnate was nailed. He who reveals God to us and us to ourselves, he who is the way, the truth, and the life, he who has given us knowledge of himself, Christ upon his cross, his greatest pulpit, if you will, the place of the new and everlasting covenant anticipated at the Last Supper and continued on the altars of Mother Church even until Christ the Lord should return in glory. This is part of that deeper echo of which our Holy Father spoke. Not only the shame of original sin, not only the first experience of shame, not only the shame of breaking a covenant, the original covenant and those subsequent, but our Holy Father also identifies here in this 30th Catechesis, sexual shame having its deep meaning, which is connected precisely with the failure to satisfy the aspiration to realize in the conjugal union of the body the reciprocal communion of persons. The conjugal union is to make love. It is the marital act. And while it is a part of holy marriage, in point of fact, we speak of ratum et consumatum, in regards to marriage, ratified, the vows are exchanged, consumatum, love is made, the conjugal act, the conjugal union, union of the body, union of persons, the communion of persons, great aspirations approach the conjugal union, anticipation of the wedding night, and yet it must end. The honeymoon is not forever, the wedding night is one night, but marriage is for life even unto the next life, to help the husband get to heaven is the wife, and to help the wife get to heaven is the husband. But shame arises because the conjugal union of the body, the reciprocal communion of persons, is not fully realized because of sexual shame. And not just the genital sexual shame, but the shame which is masculine shame, the shame which is feminine shame knowledge that we fall short of God's image in which we have been created, in which we have been made, in which we have been redeemed. Christ our Lord, bridegroom of Mother Church, has come to redeem all of this. He went to Cana. He worked his first miracle there at the request of his mother. He helped that couple there, and he longs to help couples today, husbands and wives, fathers and mothers to mirror his love for his bride, Mother Church, for which, for whom, he gave his life's blood on the cross. Pope John Paul II, in speaking of sexual shame, has us look to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Speaking further about the insatiability of the union, speaks about Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. Your desire shall be for your husband, but he will dominate you. Isn't that a shame? It's a noble thing to have a desire. A husband should desire his wife, and the wife should desire her husband. They should desire each other, the noble, the good, holy desire for each other and for communion. But there is another desire, a base desire, a desire to use, a desire to possess. And that is part of the words of Christ. He who looks upon another with a reductive desire, has already committed adultery in the heart. Your desire shall be for your husband, but he will dominate you. 
This is a sort of reduction of woman in comparison with man, whom the nuptial blessing of Mother Church reminds us is his equal and heir to the call of grace and holiness. This is part of the fall. This is part of the sad consequences of original sin from which we need a Redeemer. And we know who he is, Bridegroom of the Church, Christ our Lord. Pope John Paul II addresses another form of inequality, woman's feeling a lack of full unity precisely in the vast context of union with man to which both were called. It's not just the woman who is called to union with the husband, but the husband is likewise called to union with his wife. The two shall become one flesh. This reminds us of Pope John Paul II's first part of this magnum opus, man and woman, he created them in theology of the body, when he reminded the Pharisees and any and all that in the beginning God created them male and female. For this reason a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He does not use the five-dollar word indissolubility, but marriage does not dissolve. Till death do you part not only union of bodies, but unions of hearts and minds. And part of the inequality, which is a consequence of original sin, opposite to the original unity, the original holiness, the original grace, of which the sacred text speaks, now we have division, we have domination, we have disordered desire, the remedy of which is only grace, God's grace. Grace won at the price of Christ's cross on Calvary's hill. Grace won by his obedience, obedience unto death, death on a cross. He who is born of woman, Mary, born under the law, to give us the grace we need, that we might keep the law, that we might respect the dignity of the human person, the husband that of his wife, and the wife that of her husband. This is part of the theology of the body, as presented by Pope John Paul II. An interesting turn of phrase Pope John Paul II uses in this 30th Catechesis on Man and Woman, He Created Them, a Theology of the Body. He speaks of the primeval community, community of persons, primeval from the origins, from the beginning. It's a phrase you don't often hear, so I thought I would bring it to your attention. The last two things I thought I would cover in this 30th Catechesis, five sources of happiness our Holy Father identifies, and three questions he raises. The five sources of happiness which he identifies are as follows. The simple union in humanity, being together a source of happiness. Simple union in humanity. The pure union in humanity. So it's not enough to be together, to be united, but to be united purely, without stain. A source of happiness through reciprocal offering of self, one to the other, each to the other. Reciprocity, a source of happiness. A gift freely given, a gift freely received. A further source of happiness through the experience of the gift of the person expressed with soul and body. Not just my beautiful words, my good words, my happy words, but also my very self. Not just my body, not just my soul, the whole person. And the fifth source of happiness our Holy Father identifies in this theology of the body is that 
through subordination of the union to the blessing of fruitfulness with procreation. Fruitfulness and procreation, a source of happiness in the union of the persons. The father and the mother, they give the body, but God gives the soul, and there is rejoicing at new life given. These five sources of happiness, which our Holy Father identifies, are also at some peril by sin. Sin which robs us of our happiness. Sin which robs us of our unity, of our purity, which does not allow us to freely offer ourselves, but only seeks to receive from the other. Sin is the source of sadness, not only in this life, but in the life to come should we find ourselves not to be in heaven. Happiness comes from what is good and true and beautiful, which is why our Holy Father, Pope John Paul II, went to the trouble to give these 133 conferences on the theology of the body. He does not use the Greek word for happiness, although it was surely known to him. Perhaps this is a way of reminding us of the theological flavor, not just the philosophical import which he brings to these conferences. The last three things I thought would be timely to go over are questions he raises. Pope John Paul II gives three questions in this 30th Catechesis, and I don't know if they were posited merely rhetorically or if he will answer them later. We'll have to be attentive to that to see if he offers further explanation or further answers to them. But as for now, let's at least look and highlight the three questions. Does the expression about domination, your desire will be for him, he will dominate you, does the expression about domination indicate the third form of concupiscence? Well, this question presupposes that we know just what the heck concupiscence is. Concupiscence the tendency to do evil, the tendency to sin, one of the consequences of the fall, original sin. In an earlier catechesis, Pope John Paul II highlighted St. John's first letter, wherein the three concupiscences are identified. Concupiscence of the eyes, concupiscence of the flesh, and the pride of life. So if the question, does the expression about domination indicate the third form of concupiscence, It seems the Holy Father is asking, is this a manifestation of pride of life? I am trying to dominate you even though you are my equal. Or perhaps even better, you are my ticket to heaven. The husband should say to his wife and she should say to him, forgetting the nuptial blessing where the equality of the two is highlighted. The Holy Father doesn't answer this question here, but he raises it. And perhaps in the 103 remaining catechesis, he will address it at least obliquely. The second question our Holy Father asks in this 30th catechesis is this. Does the domination over the other essentially change the structure of communion in interpersonal relations? In the first question, the Holy Father is focusing on domination. In this second question, he's focusing on over, domination over the other. Because self-domination is another way to say virtue. We're all about virtue. The Holy Father wants us to be chaste. He wants us 
to be virtuous, no question. Does the domination over the other essentially change the structure of communion and interpersonal relations? Relations between the husband and the wife, this man and that woman. This is a architectonic question, overarching, and I am well believing that he will address it in the 103 catechesis to follow. The third question, does the domination over the other make an object out of a human being, an object in some sense concupiscible for the eyes? Pope John Paul II was very concerned about objectivity, about truth, about reality, but also very respectful of the dignity of the human person. And so he has given us not only these three questions, but these 133 conferences wherein to focus on the objective truth of the matter of the human being, the human person, who is always an end and never an object. Until next time, God bless you.